0: Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe follow like and leave your reviews for the podcast and now enjoy my name is ross mcichi i'm your host and i'm excited about our guest this evening carmen spaniola first i'll let all of you know that although we have people joining us from all over the world the physical location of banyan books and sound on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. Our wonderful guest this evening is uh, a local West Coaster. She lives in Victoria on Vancouver Island, just to jump over from Vancouver. Her name is Carmen Spaniola. She's a Le Cordon Bleu trained chef, turned trauma recovery practitioner, and clinical hypnotherapist. She is an intersectional witch of Scottish, German, Irish, English, and Swedish descent. Each month, Carmen leads dozens of classes and somatic practice sessions in her membership community, the Numinous Network, and she has hosted the Numinous Podcast since 2014. There's a really awesome quote from Carmen on her website, and I had to share it with you. She says this about herself. If I owned business cards, they might say somatic trauma recovery practitioner or clinical hypnotherapist or attachment repatterning therapist. They might even say chef and cookbook author. More accurately, they'd say cranky lady. I'm daily aggrieved by capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy, but I don't have business cards. Instead, I do as my Quaker elders have taught me. I let my life speak. Professionally, I work at the intersection of attachment, somatics, and personal plus collective trauma. I work on the physical, emotional, relational, and psychological and spiritual levels. Personally, I wake up each day and say, expletive, F, all the bullshit. Interruption, disruption, divestment, and dismantling are the name of the game re-enchantment, creative imagining, collective care, and soul nourishment, living into new possibilities, liberation, and communion restored are the goal. I love that. Today, Carmen Spaniola is with Banyan Books in conversation about her new book, which is titled The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year, Everyday Animism, Folk Magic, and Witchcraft. I was so amazingly surprised at how potent this book is. It's not just a cookbook with beautiful pictures. It is all of that, but it's got a lot of cultural history. It's got a lot of um, magic and ritual and ways that we can connect uh, with the land and um, the culture that the land speak to speaks to us in whatever place we're in. If you'd like to learn more about today's honored guest, you can visit her website, which is CarmenSpaniola.com. And her last name is spelled S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm Banyan welcome for Carmen Spaniola.
1: Hello. Hi, Carmen. Hi. Actually, that all sounded like a fun party. I was like, I'll go. I'd go to that.
0: Well, it is a fun party. Actually, like all, all of the feasts that you have laid out in this book are incredible, really incredible. Yeah.
1: Thank you. And they're based on real parties. We've had real, real observances, real um, gatherings we've hosted for the Wheel of the Year. Many of the photos in the book are actual events. So um, yeah, that is the feel. It's kind of a kitchen party.
0: That's really cool. And and uh, the photographs uh, are incredible. Is that a friend of yours, the photographer?
1: It is. My dear friend, Stephanie Ray Hull of Centric Photography was my collaborator on this. And um, I, I couldn't have done it without her and I wouldn't want to. And I do hope to write more cookbooks in the future. And uh, but I but I'll wait until she's ready because she's the only one I want to collaborate with. She really she makes our tiny house look really beautiful. <laughs> she made everything just look so magical. Yeah, I was really happy with the result.
0: Yeah, it looks so nice. Carmen, at the start of the book, we thought this would be a great way to open up the space for everybody. There's this beautiful prayer to all the brave initiates by Carmina Gadelica. Can you share that with us?
1: Yeah, actually. So to all the brave initiates is my dedication. To all those that have uh, worked with me or who are um, taking this book into their own spirited kitchens and becoming kitchen witch initiates. And the Carmina Gedelica is a book that was uh, written of collected stories from the 1800s um, and a little bit earlier, but mainly from the 1800s in the highlands of Scotland. And so it was a, a um, Christian who had grown up speaking Gaelic and he gathered um, folklore and history. And so this is a prayer uh, that would have been shared and spoken in Scottish Gaelic um, a few centuries ago. Bless, O oh chief of generous chiefs, myself and everything in near me. Bless me in all my actions. Make thou me safe forever. Make thou me safe forever from every brownie and banshee, from every evil wish and sorrow, from every nymph and water wraith, from every fairy mouse and grass mouse, from every fairy mouse and grass mouse, from every troll among the hills, from every siren hard pressing me, from every ghoul within the glens, oh, save me till the end of my day, oh, save me till the end of my day. And with that, I I just wanna point out the animist language coming through there. And um, it makes sense to me when I read that, why the Scottish Highlanders and the the Scottish folks who came over and settled and colonized uh, in the new world felt so much kinship with so many of the indigenous um, nations that they encountered um, because that animist worldview is so evident in the way that they would speak. And so there was a lot in common. I'm uh, personally joining from the lens of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, those are the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, and um, I feel, as I've learned more about my own Scottish Highlander ancestry, greater and greater kinship um, in the way that the clan system um, is so similar to the way uh, so many of the nations were set up here, even just in the area where I live, even things like fosterage and... Um, reciprocity with um, the land. There, there are just so many ways in which it makes sense to me that um, there is a human impulse to be in right relationship with the land and that that hopefully will... Um, m- Inform our relations with each other. That's one of the reasons why I think the ancestral veneration piece of the Spirited Kitchen can help those of us who are white-bodied or who have mixed heritage, who are both who have both um, oppressed and oppressor in our lineages, to have more compassion and to be walking on the land and being here in a good way.
0: You've had a really interesting journey, I think, Carmen, from going from a Le Cordon Bleu trained chef to working, as you say, at the intersection of attachment, somatics and personal plus collective trauma. And now you've put out this amazing book. I'm wondering if you can just illuminate for us a little bit about your journey for people to understand who you are and where you've come from and how this book came to be.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um As you mentioned, I mainly have Scottish descent as well as Irish and English and German, Um, but I didn't feel very much connection to those lineages I don't know very much about my ancestry a lot of it is sort of lost to time and. um, And then professionally I come from a culinary and hospitality industry background, Uh, but I pivoted kind of between. Like 2007 to 2013, and have been working in um, the health and wellness sector. I guess you could call it in in healing practices and modalities ever since. And um, it wasn't it wasn't a happy pivot in a way. Like I I had worked um, in. Uh, food and wine and restaurants after being a chef, I was a sales rep for some of the great wines and spirits of the world for many years. Uh, But I decided, I felt this call to work in retail actually. And so, you know, Banyan being like a a iconic store is one that I modeled myself on when I had a store in West Vancouver um, based on sustainable design and, um, you know, uh, ethical trade But then the Great Recession happened and it washed my business away. And here I'd been like a very successful, well-educated person who just lost everything within a few months. And I found myself facing the situation of being a single parent of like a five-year-old kid in West Vancouver, trying to keep the roof over my head and the lights on with no income. And I was so sad and depressed. I, I literally couldn't even get a job at Starbucks. I remember going to apply for a job at Starbucks after my store had closed down and crying when she was like, wow, you have this incredible resume. Why would you want to work here? And I started crying and the lady was like, I don't know if customer service is the best choice for you right now. And, and so like when I couldn't get a job at Starbucks, I was like pretty rock bottom. And um, I ended up having to go to the welfare office, I ended up going on welfare. And in order to keep paying for my rent, I had to really save my pennies when it came to food. And I fortunately was offered this roadside garden. And it already had potatoes and kale and parsnips and herbs and things like that. And so I started tending this garden, like my life depended on it, because it basically did. And that's when I started to kind of remember this ancestral knowledge that I had, that I actually do come from a long line of really good gardeners and like really good cooks and very resilient women. And, um, and it's, it's like, it started to pour through me, this ability to intuit what to do to get the most out of the soil. And that was my introduction to a more animistic relationship where I was really embedded in that web of life where I recognized how much I relied on the plants to feed me. And um, it kind of almost started to feel like they were rooting for me. <laughs> like They like wanted me to succeed and wanted me to get back on my feet. And of course I eventually did. Um, but that began that more reverent relationship I had with the land and with the food that I could grow and what I could do with it as a cook.
0: Wow. Wow. And, and so, okay. So fast forward now to, you know, you're, you're, you're on the Island, you're in Victoria, you've got a home and this land and you're, you're practicing, you're helping people. You've got your podcast. How did this, how did this book, what were the, the seeds of this book for you?
1: Well, I mean, let's not make it sound too idyllic here, Ross. I mean, you know, I I rent a a small house, you know, in Vancouver. This would be infill housing, right? It's like 850 square feet. I live in the middle of the city. I do have a nice yard, like a pretty good size, but it's north facing. It's, you know, I'm not like living a rural life. I live in Fernwood in Victoria. It's essentially, it's downtown. It's the inner city, you know? Um, And so...
0: In the pictures, it looks like you're in the country.
1: Doesn't it? If, yeah. To the, thank you, Stephanie. She made it look so wonderful. It's so pastoral. But it's really just an urban yard. And um, having the experience of, like, the sobering understanding that the social safety net in Canada is not what we think it is. It's not this, like, mythic um. Uh, security blanket that i kind of grew up thinking you know we don't live in tommy douglas's canada anymore ross like there's just like not that much going on in terms like you have to be really destitute to get help from the state and so it kind of started my radicalization as well <laughs> i was like wow okay so like collective care mutual aid um reciprocity, the trauma of capitalism, that's when those seeds started to take root. And I began training. And so now, of course, I have multiple credentials in modalities like clinical hypnotherapy, so I could work with people who had mental health issues, um, with trauma recovery, with um, uh, disability justice, et cetera. And one of the things I have found is that Food and ingestion behaviors, eating and drinking together, are one of the ways that we come together as a community. It's medicinal for our bodies, but it's also medicinal for our relationships. And the basic unit of society is the meal. You know, it's not necessarily the heterosexual coupled family, the nuclear family, that kind of thing. It's the meal. That's what brings us together. And we can build off of that. So when I'm working in trauma recovery, I talk a lot about contact nutrition. There's basically five forms of contact nutrition. It's kind eyes, it's vocal prosody, it's safe touch, it's shared rhythm, and ingestion behaviors like eating and drinking. We know from, if your if folks listening are familiar with polyvagal uh, theory and Stephen Porges' work, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the interpersonal neurobiology of that. And One of the things I've recognized in my own spiritual life is that whatever our Trauma or attachment wounds are, et cetera, in our relationships with humans, it's going to show up in our relationship with the more than human as well. And so, so much of what I'm trying to teach people is about how to scan for and find safeness, tolerate resting in states of well being and in proximity to love and care, and like really trust it and receive it and let it come in. And when we couple that with food, the feeling of like getting kind eyes and conversation or the sense of like inviting the greater powers, the benevolent powers to come sit with us and, you know, break bread with us, dine with us, be with us at the table, or perhaps our ancestors. One of the things that happens is when we couple that with food, we get a feeling of satedness. It's like I'm I'm taking in all this goodness, I'm able to absorb the feelings of belonging and connection and also my tummy's full. And so we can actually condition our nervous system to have a feeling of satisfiability and enoughness and connection. And so when I'm bringing people together, whether it's online or to do like a wheel of the year ritual or whether we're at my home and we're doing ritual craft with meals, All of these things are designed to be able to feel connection and belonging, but also satedness and ability to like feel full, full, you know, and enoughness that I am enough and I'm getting enough and it's, there's always connection and belonging and nurturance available to me. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'm trying to kind of paint a picture of like, this is where the book is coming from and what we're trying to do when we weave the recipes and rituals together and how it's a, it's a form of, of trauma recovery from living in capitalist, imperialist, (laughs) white supremacist patriarchy. It's kind of an ambitious thing, but I think I've managed to kind of weave it in, in some subtle and more obvious ways in the book.
0: Yes, you have. Wow. 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 That, that, that explanation you gave, it was fantastic. I I just want to make a note for those who don't know the work of Dr. Stephen Porges. We had him on the program uh, maybe a year ago or so. Mm -hmm. So you can look back and find that episode if you want to learn about polyvagal theory. Um, Okay. So where does, where does the idea or the practice of witchcraft fit into this? Because early in the book, you give a word on witchcraft and I'm just going to share a little quote. You tell us the notion of quote unquote witchcraft was an invention of the 15th century as a negative rebrand of millennia old folk practice, which served to protect powerful, rich white people, mostly men, from the outrage of the people they enslaved and stole from.
1: Yes. Shout out to Sylvia Federici, who wrote this wonderful book, Caliban and the Witch, which, um, you know, admittedly, it's it's kind of dense. It's pretty hard to get through. But I know a lot of people who wouldn't identify as witches, who, who, who wouldn't publicly say that. And I think it's because they don't know what a witch is. <laughs> and so a, a witch, I believe there, there are many different kinds of witch. But if you look, if you are a person who is an animist, and you are a person who is an activist, I think that makes you a witch. You may not identify as that, but those are the two things that I also think can um, kind of inoculate us from like Instagram witchcraft. Don't get me wrong. I love Instagram. Totally on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram. Love it. Um, But if you aren't an animist and you are not an activist, I question whether you're actually a witch, even if you say that you are. So what Sylvia Federici was talking about was the the privatization of the commons, which had been previously the purview of many people, but mostly women for sure, were engaged in the protection of the commons. And so there were centuries of bread riots and strikes. And, and, you know, we often think now of like, oh, feminism has been about women having fewer rights and gradually earning more. But that actually, again, you know, that that's only our very recent history. There's a period of time in the medieval ages where women were 50% of the members in the guilds. And that's all the guilds, you know, not just like weaving and cloth making, but blacksmithing, you know, there's a reason why Bridget is the goddess, the deity, the goddess associated with, with smithery, right? It, women were doing these things, but gradually what happened was the privatization of the commons and the subjugation of women so that they could just be in the home basically reproducing workforce. And so what I'm describing in The Spirited Kitchen is that if you are a person, you, may, you don't have to identify as a witch to enjoy this book, but if you are a person who... Um, is interested in collective care, who's interested in um, equality for all, who's interested in protecting the commons, who's interested in, um, you know, equity, essentially, and justice. And you have a practice of being in relationship with the land, with animals, in a way that respects them, their, their sovereignty, then you, you are de facto a witch. You have all of the qualities of being a witch. You don't have to identify as that. And if we don't agree on that, that's, that's totally fine. But witchcraft is very much about having an animus perspective coupled with an activist inclination.
0: OK, wow. That's a, a, a different definition than I've ever heard. And I, <laughs> uh, But I, I get it. it. It puts it more, it makes it more accessible, I think, it, to me, at least in this, the modern context that we're living in.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what, what people think about with witches is of course you're working with magic and you're working with spellcraft and, and that, that is absolutely true. But what I'm saying is that there is a, um, it has become a political act, uh, because of oppressive forces trying to, you know, um, erase and, um, denude us of those powers and so we will resist tyranny in all its forms and we will do it with any means necessary including magic and witchcraft
0: okay you were going to share a reading from page 18 kitchen magic is spiritual practice is that still suitable
1: yeah sure i'd okay. love to explain that okay yeah so just for folks who Maybe don't know. So you you know the the book is called The Spirited Kitchen: Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year. I'm often asked, "Is it Wiccan?" No, it isn't Wiccan. Um, And I do get into like this kind of syncretic approach, um, but I also get into this. This is a passage where I'm talking about what is my perspective. Where does the magic come in? And of course, the Wheel of the Year is not just a Wiccan um, concept, right? So in the Spirited Kitchen, we're celebrating the solstices and the equinoxes and the halfway points in between. And um, so another way of saying that is that there's like eight micro seasons of the year. And we honor those observances with food and ritual craft and activities that are particular and have a a particular resonance with that time of year. So here now we're going down to the smaller unit, which is the food. Why does the, what is it, what's the deal with resonances in the food? To understand the multidimensional nature of our kitchen magic, it can be useful to think of life as occurring on four levels from material to pure potential. And for this, I'll paraphrase John Michael Greer, former archdruid of the ancient order of druids in America, expert on ceremonial magic, and someone from whom I've learned a tremendous amount. Consider a simple ingredient like a hazelnut. On the physical level, the hazelnut is small and firm in your fingers. Toasted, it has a mellow, almost sweet nutty flavor and leaves a mildly oily residue that pleasantly lingers in the mouth. But the hazelnut also exists on an etheric level A complex of forces that hold the hazelnut together and even emanate from it. I'm not talking about fats and proteins here, I'm talking about life force energies. Western cultures don't speak much of etheric energies. The sad irony is that our best understanding of etheric energies comes to us through a blockbuster movie slash mega merch franchise. May the force be with you, Is a bit like a culturally appropriated counterpart to the Chinese concept of chi and the Indian concept of prana. Each of these concepts are pointing at a similar thing, the idea that everything is permeated with a vital principle, a life force, an etheric energy. In magic, the hazelnut also exists on the astral level. The astral level is related to resonances set in motion by the sun, moon, and planets of our solar system. In natural magic, hazelnuts flow on a metaphorical energy current with mercury, specifically in Virgo, which is a particularly exalted combination. This astrological recipe means that hazelnuts are resonant with super effective communication. And then there is the mental level of hazelnuts, which is more about the abstract concept of them. This would include all the myth and lore about hazelnuts as food from a tree of wisdom and all the divination done with hazelnuts over the centuries and everything you know about them and associate with them. So when we speak about the spirit of hazelnut we're grasping all of these levels at once spirit is the maximum potential encompassing all of these dimensions simultaneously. Long after the physical dimension of the hazelnut is no longer perceptible, after it has moved through and out of your body, the nutrients it has provided you remain in the glow of your skin, the strength of your nails, and the luster of your hair. The memories of it are carried forward and added to hazelnut lore. The resonances still exist and can be revived as soon as you catch the scent of hazelnut syrup in a coffee shop. The aroma ignites a cellular memory that inspires mindfulness and a moment of spiritual resonance. This modern druidic explanation of the resonances between all things is helpful to keep in mind as you use this book. Though sometimes I do use the word symbol as a convenient term, what I actually believe is that everything carries a multidimensional resonance through which the magic flows when we maintain awareness of the multidimensional nature of our ingredients and the significance of how and when we employ them, then each recipe we make is actually a ritual in itself. We are blending energies, conjuring something new and specific, taking that into our body and integrating it into our being. We become the talisman. We are the magic.
0: Thank you. I, I, it's just so, uh, I, I'm on le- one level, I know this, but I'm always so surprised to be reminded of this, uh, these universal truths that you see through all of the ancient cultures. I've, I've studied the the Indian traditions with my teacher and there's always this talk about the the multi dimensional nature of everything and the intersection of those things and the human being and our food, everything. So I just love hearing that. That's so great. Mm. Uh, um, the layout of the book features the wheel of the year it's with eight sections representing the seasonal markers. And then for each seasonal marker, you give rituals and seasonal foods and feasts. Uh, or those foods make up the feast. Um, and in the in the intro, you mentioned that the wheel of the year in the book is not a Wiccan calendar of Sabbaths. Can you tell us about how you came to the particular form that you've presented here?
1: Sure. Yes. So. In my ancestral research, just learning more about um, the culture of the Scottish Highlands where I can like follow my lineage, I came across some really amazing authors of the last century. And one, uh, her name was F. Marion McNeil. And she has written so many amazing books on food and festivals of Scotland and She has a four book set called The Silver Bow. So it's kind of a response or a pattern after um, Fraser's The the Golden Bow, which is so much about mythology. So she sort of took that idea and did all of the festivals of Scotland. And um, in Scotland, the quarter days are uh, Lunasa, sorry, I should start at the beginning. So the Samhain, um, uh, Beltane. Lunasa, how am I missing one? Oh, Imbolc, sorry. After Samhain, Imbolc. And so I sort of started with those four, because it was like, okay, ancestrally, this feels very resonant and relevant to me. And also because really when we're following that wheel of the year, we're following an agricultural wheel of the year. Like what are the cows and sheep doing in a, at that time of year? And then, you know, in the summer, what is what are we doing about grain? That sort of thing. In between those times, um, they would call the cross-quarter days. And this is actually flipped. Some people, if you have like English background, you would be like, wait, you know, Imbolc and Beltane and Lunasa and Samhain, those are cross-quarter days. Not in the Gallic tradition, <laughs> that is not. So that that is a colonial construct that came in and it's kind of, it's hegemonic. They've like flipped it. <laughs> so I started to kind of go, oh, You know, there's these things that have been used in Wicca, but that is that is an English, um, you know, fairly recent tradition. And my people are from Scotland. So I tried to adhere to that. And then I started to follow, Okay, well, what are some of the other traditions that feel meaningful in the halfway points in between um, uh, and the, the solstices and equinoxes based on, you know, Essentially, like looking around it, like what is relevant to the world that I'm living in today, and you know the 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 tradition. There is no pristine prior tradition where you're like, oh, this is the wheel of the year, and it's how it is everywhere. There is no universal wheel of the year. The wheel of the year grows up in whatever culture it has come from, and I'm growing up in a West Coast North American you know, modern culture. And so some of the things need to be rituals and ceremonies that are, that are relevant to where I'm living today. So what I've done is taken a little bit of my ancestral stuff, and then a little bit of things like midsummer that, that isn't a common, it was, it was certainly celebrated in the Scottish Highlands, but it, it wasn't a cross quarter day. And so I use the Roman, um, Midsummer Festival of Vestalia at my house. So it's just called Midsummer in the book. Um, I like Yuletide. Tide is so awesome to me. So I use that Norse tradition. So I'm encouraging people to use the mix of their heritage and also kind of like look around at what's significant to you that you would want to um, use as a marker, a meaningful marker that you want to revisit throughout the year. So it's a blend of a few different um, approaches. So it's a bit druidic. It's a bit um celtic in the sort of germanic um tradition um, it's a bit greek and roman um, but the idea the principle of it is that every six weeks or so it's solstices and equinoxes and halfway points in between you're looking around yourself and you're saying like oh what what helps me ground and how do I recognize myself in the cycle of life, what's happening around me that I could honor and use as a teacher to move through time and space in this way?
0: So we're coming into Tide now. Uh, for those who are watching this not live, it's December 8th today. And uh, Tide. and uh, there's a quote I wanted to share. You write the following about Yuletide. You say Yuletide is more a season than an event, which adapts well to the complexities of modern self-directed spirituality. Yule is the Anglo-Saxon name for a two-month midwinter season that spans all of December and January. And you go on to give a little bit more history. So I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit more to us about what Yuletide is all about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in some cultures, Yuletide is all of December, all of January leading right up to February 1st or so. Um, For other cultures, it can be shortened or the days can change, but for most there's sort of the heart of winter and that occurs from winter solstice on December 1st, uh, sorry, 21st and goes to January 1st. So there's these 12 days. And when I say it's a replay of the year in miniature, it's an opportunity in the heart of winter to reflect on the year that was and have some kind of honoring for every month that has just passed. Now, of course, you know there's traditions in Austria or Germany or like Ireland or Greece or different places where they, they will all have their own variation. But there, there's usually in Yuletide like a night when you're gonna honor um, the solstice There's a night when you're gonna honor your ancestors, like the the recent dead or the beloved dead. Um, There's a night when you're gonna have some conviviality and some feasting with your community. And there's usually a night for oath-making and divination. So those are kind of like the main ones that you'll sort of hit through that season, almost know anywhere you go in sort of like Eastern to Western Europe that they're gonna hit those big ones. Um, but the December 21st to January 1st does show up in a few different places. And for me as like, as a modern, it makes sense to me to have this experience of reflecting and replaying the year so that we can end it in a good way and then release it. Um, but there's definitely some days that are like my personal favorites that I think of, you know, I think a lot of us who are interested in earth honoring, um, you know, maybe you could call it pagan or neo-pagan practices, you know, we're going to celebrate the solstice course, solstice. It's like, it's, it's a, It's the Mac Daddy night, right? It's like, oh my gosh, (laughs) the sun's coming back. Of course, we're going to show up for that. Like, let's get together. Um, But also, it can be in many cultures considered Mother's Night because everything begins with the mother. And so for Mother's Night, you would be celebrating your matrilineage. You might be putting photos of your um ancestors from your um, maternal line on the altar, you would be making offerings maybe of their favorite libations. Um, I put a little Dramphuey on there for my grandma, (laughs) that kind of thing, Um, or making a very treasured family recipe. And in many cultures they eat white foods, what they call white foods. So like very mild flavored foods, things that are made with cream, with butter, you know, white bread with butter or cheeses. And that's because they're honoring the nurturance of the matriarch and her life-giving milk. So they're putting out foods for the ancestors that they will leave a morsel on the altar for them. But then they're also eating them themselves and drinking milks and things like that. So there's, there's a number of different ways, like I think, especially for folks who have difficult or estranged relationships with their maternal line. They might be thinking like, "Oh gosh, I don't. <laughs> that doesn't feel like a thing I really want to honor." There's so many other things. One of the things I do is I welcome in the Kayak, who's the old woman of winter in Scottish and Irish tradition, and she's not a warm, fuzzy ancestor. She kind of reminds me of my grandma, actually. <laughs> and so, you know, in that kind of way, cleaning your house, putting fresh linens on the bed. Um, you know, d- donating old things like taking care of your home, giving your, your stovetop or your oven a good scrub so you're taking care of your hearth. Those are all ways that we could welcome in the kayak, the old woman of w- winter and try to gain her favor. Or if you're using an altar, which is like my favorite ritual all of all Yuletide, I think of the altar at Yuletide as like an advent calendar, but in reverse where every day you're adding something to it. So on the first night, December 21st solstice, for Mother's Night, I might put like a little figurine or like even a a tree ornament of a stag because the Kayak was known as the creator of the land, but particularly the protectress of the forest dwellers and especially deer. So just placing something on the altar for that first night is a really nice way to honor her. And then the other days I would say I really hit are December 23rd, December 26th, and the 30th. Um, I think maybe actually for December 23rd, is it okay if I read just a little bit from my book?
0: Please. And okay. while you're grabbing your book there, I'll just remind our live audience, we're going to get to some of your questions in a few minutes. So please go ahead and type them into the chat and we'll tend to as many of those as we can. Okay.
1: So December 23rd is the third night and it's known for the wild hunt. The wild hunt is a European folklore motif involving a large ghostly hunting party that travels at night on horseback composed of the souls of the dead and deities associated with the underworld. Celebrations acknowledge the animal familiars involved, horses, wild boar and deer. Tonight, we remember our ancient dead, the ones whose names are forgotten to time, and especially those whose souls may not be at rest. To appease them, we might prepare a traditional uh, dish from the place where our way back people lived. And tonight, you can leave gifts outside for wild animals and birds, such as popcorn on a string, bird seed, or raw nuts. Today, I'll add a rabbit figurine to the altar to honor the energy of spring, since this day is connected with March. So this is kind of one of the early ways that ghost stories are introduced to the Yuletide festivities because the wild hunt is like really wild. Um, In some traditions, they say it starts at Samhain, at Halloween, and so it sort of peaks at the winter solstice. And so people didn't wanna be kept outside. They wouldn't go outside after dark. And so it's a good night also for like your Charles Dickens Christmas Carol kind of stuff. or to honor some of these like really badass deities, um, because the wild hunt was said to be led by a female deity, and it depends on where you are, but it was like Gudrun Horsedale or um, Lucy, uh, or um, uh, Frau Perkta. And Perkta was an interesting goddess who, at this time of year, and you know we have like, oh, if if you're you're bad. Children, your name's going to go on the naughty list. But actually, in this Germanic tradition, if you were a bad child, Perkta would come and disembowel the children and stuff them with hay. <laughs> so, like, we're talking hardcore. So, this could be a night where, yeah, you're putting animal figurines out or like. I usually uh, bake ham on that night. So there's a ham recipe um, in the spirited kitchen for that. I love to cook a nugget ham to honor the wild boar, the prized game of the, of the wild hunt. Um, but also just like giving your animals, your dog, like a, a, a beef bone or something like that is a way to honor the wild hunt. The other night that I think is so fun is December 26th. Um, so this is the day when we honor the supernaturals who live in our house, so our house brownies. Maybe I'll read this one too because there's so many words for it. So this is the day we're gifting our house elves and the supernatural allies. Today we gift to the gnomes, elves, fairies, brownies, Tomta, Nisa, Kobold, domovoy, and other little people living in your home. These are tutelary spirits who protect your house and property In the Scottish tradition brownies help out with chores and yard work and watch over livestock and generally bring good luck throughout the year bowls of porridge or rice pudding and tiny glasses of milk beer cider or brandy are common offerings little people are not always benevolent especially if they feel slighted or taken for granted so this is an important observance to ensure smooth operations in the coming year so where you know in sort of secular or Christmas traditions, we put out cookies for Santa. The the cookies at our house are for the house brownies. (laughs) And it's very much to like honor them. And um, I'll even show you one year to honor my house brownies to try to, I was courting a house brownies, trying to get one to take up residence. So I took, I made a model, a little model of our house and painted it with our house paint. And like, it has a little tiny house version on a shelf that comes out for our house brownie and I like leave little oats or things like that there to be like this is your place and there's certain places in every home that your domestic spirit will be kind of drawn to so like certainly at your front door so it's nice to have like Maybe a dried flower or just like jingle bells or something, a little gnome figurine to sort of signal, like, hey, we're open to your help. You know, come take up residence here, um, but also your hearth. So that'll be wherever you do your cooking. So um, in many traditions, if you make a nice meal that night, you would take a little of the sauce and you actually smear it on your stovetop as a way to make a little offering to your tutelary spirit. And then the last day that's important to me is December 30th. So usually in Yuletide traditions, there is one night that's a bit more somber where we're acknowledging the recent dead. So, we, so I spend December 30th, one hour at least in vigil with a candle, just reflecting on the people that I know or have heard of who've died in the past year. And my ritual for that night, well, I'll I'll gather with people in the numinous network and we'll do vigil together. Um, But the ritual that I do is I'll write down their names and I'll write prayers. And then I find this a really important part of my overall grief practice and my justice work through the year in terms of bringing... my faith, my spiritual faith to that. And so I'll look up all of the people who died by, for instance, police violence in Canada. It's like literally on Wikipedia. And I'll write down their names and I'll write a little prayer for them. Or I'll write a prayer for anybody who's, you know, died of COVID. I may not know them, but I'll write a prayer for them. So I spend an hour in vigil just thinking about all the ways that capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchy, enact violence, and I'll write them down. And I let that sit on my altar, again, with offerings. I'll put, like, food from my dinner, put that out. Sometimes I put it outside at the ancestor tree. And it'll stay, that list will stay on my altar for a day. And then the next day, on December 31st, when we have a fire to help cleanse and purify from the past year, I'll put the name very reverently on there with some... Incense that I've made as some spirit food, and just use that as a way to help release their energy and send them to a place of peace. So, those are some like really important dates that I really focus on during my 12 days of Yuletide. And they're not necessarily like the Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve thing that a lot of people do. But what I love about that is that it does give me an extended period of reflection and honoring and gifting. And I feel like I'm in contemplative practice for like a couple of weeks so that by the time I get to December 31st, I really do feel like I'm ending something well and I'm ready to usher something in.
0: Wonderful. And just so people get a sense, everything that Carmen's just shared with us about Yuletide, each section of the book, the eight seasonal markers through the wheel of the year, she does the same thing There's there's a kind of uh, an overview of the history uh, across some of the different northern Western European cultures and there's uh, different rituals. And then there's a feast with recipes and and food uh, given as well. Um, Before we get to some audience questions, I had to ask you about this. I'm just going to hold up the picture of your (gasps) traditional eggnog because I have committed to making this for my family this year. It sounds so good and you tell us that it's a potent brew and we should drink it in our tiniest <laughs> daintiest teacups. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, it's it's, you know, it's got the eggs and the alcohol and they like the alcohol basically like pasteurizes, like it preserves. The eggs so that it's like very safe to have actual eggs. And then you get this like very good, frothy thick. It's like it is the best eggnog you've ever had. And it tastes very Moorish. Like you want more and more, but it is so potent. It has so much alcohol in it. Again, I'm kind of like I my grandmother Isabel was um, she was kind of the life of the party. Uh, but I didn't appreciate until I you know, became a single mom myself that, you know, she was a, a divorcee in the fifties with four girls, two to 12 with her own beauty salon. And she was a great gardener and she was an incredible cook. And she was a fabulous entrepreneur. And she used to have books on her, she had like, um, You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay and like the Silva Method of Mind Control. Like I used to go through these books Because, you know, she was like an Amway salesman and she was like really working on mindset stuff and like um, psychology, personal psychology and the psychology of happiness back in the 70s when it was, you know, just kind of a burgeoning field. So I think I took in that stuff by osmosis. So now when I think of like, and in that photo, that's my grandma's old country roses, China. It was like really special that I have it. And so I paired those together again to honor her in this way, in this book. It's like out in the world now, her influence. And um, she brought a lot of joy to what was like a pretty hard life in a lot of ways, right? She came just downstream from like a lot of um, difficulty and a lot of personal loss and trauma. And um, she made a really good life. And if, if it weren't for that influence, I wouldn't have, I think the richness and the meaning that I have in my own. So um, it's traditional eggnog in the sense that it's like pretty boozy and pretty eggy and um, make sure that you only have a tiny little bit. Yeah, it's so delicious though, it'll be hard.
0: I can't wait, <laughs> I can't wait. Um, okay, so I think it's time for some audience questions. Um, so the, the first one I wanted to share is from um, Sabina. Sabina says, in your opinion, how does, quote unquote, fast food cuisine impact our relationship with each other? Can't wait to read your book at my kitchen table. Thank you.
1: Uh, Well, I have to say, um, as a person who has navigated multiple levels of class, In my life, you know, I grew up very much like working class and kind of my family sort of slowly ascended to like middle class. And I would say I'm like pretty thoroughly middle class, but I've worked for the the uber wealthy when I worked as a private chef on mega yachts. And so I have a lot of compassion for folks who are so much in survival mode that they, that that's what they can afford and that's what they have time for. And that's what avail what's available to them. I have a ton of compassion for folks who live in food deserts. So I, I, I think that there are a lot of other forces that are um, more impactful that create more attachment rupture than let's say the food itself. Um, But our lack of awareness of our dependency on Healthy ecosystems, um, I think, also because it puts us into quite a lot of shock when there are interruptions in that, or we realize, like for me, the interruption was I'm on welfare and I have to choose between rent and food, and here's like parsnips, which I've never eaten in my life, and so I, you know, figured it out. Um, But recently, we've had supply chain issues. Uh, When we lived in the early days of the pandemic with, you know, not a lot of things on our shelves. Um, And I think what we saw is that people really can come together. And food is one of the ways we do that. delivering groceries to people, you know, um, taking things, you know, making food for friends who were shut-ins. There were ways in which we came together so beautifully over food. So I don't think it's necessarily the fast food itself. It's the conditions of disconnection and the conditions of like capitalist oppression that put so much strain on our bodies, our minds, our spirits. And I think so many of the, um, mental and emotional challenges and um, diseases, we have are diseases of capitalism. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I find that more, um, you know, horrifying, really, than the actual fast food itself. I will say this, it's been a long time since I ate kind of like, I don't really know what's happening, what's considered fast food anymore. We're pretty lucky. We have Big Wheel Burger in Victoria, which is like fast food, but it's all steroid-free and, you know, homemade buns and all of that kind of thing. Um, I think, you know, yeah, I think that there are systemic forces that push people into positions where that's what's available to them, or that's, you know, um, yeah, that's that's the best choice they can make out of a of very few choices that are mostly really crappy. I don't know if that's answering your question, but that's my take. That's my hot take.
0: (laughs) Thank you. And there's another question here from, um, hang on, let me just find the, the name here. Okay, here it is. It's from Wendy. How did your experience in trauma healing and somatic therapy influence this book? What encouragement would you have to those of us on a similar healing path as ancestors of both oppressed and oppressor?
1: Mm, That's a great question, Wendy. Thank you for that. And when my my kid was small and they would ask me tough questions, I'd be like, that is a thick question. Would you like the thick answer or the thin answer? And I think in the time we have, I'll give the thin answer, which is that um, the sense of not only connection but agency and self-efficacy that I felt not only in growing what little food I was able to, but also in like making good use of what meager ingredients I had, being able to like eat very well on very simple things um, was one of the things that I would say contributed to my post-traumatic growth. So, you know, we, we know of that stressful situations, and prolonged, Um, an acute stress can create post-traumatic stress disorder, but sometimes there is post-traumatic growth where there is like an edge or a breakthrough that comes um, through severe challenge. And I would say that it was that sense of self-efficacy that once you learn how to do any one thing, you learn that you can learn new things. And so I learned that I could be really resourceful I also learned that um, if I was attuned and paying attention, you know, the, the the garden or the food just needed a little bit of my attention, a little bit at a time at the right time. And it's the same with trauma recovery. You're not in healing all the time. The world is just like always going to give you reasons to be dysregulated and disconnected. And what we're looking for is a little bit of settling and nervous system discharge and, and uh, resolution at the right time a little bit of attunement at the right time is is really what's needed You don't have to always feel good or always feel healed right And I'm not always going to be able to do like some elaborate ritual but when I'm in genuine relationship with the greater than human, Then just making a cup of tea can become my offering. I can like ask the ancestors, do you want to have tea with me right now? Or I can like, I can make, you know, avocado toast and I can turn that into a ritual of um, gratitude and rejoicing. And it's just a little bit at a time at the right time, just enough contact nutrition to help my nervous system settle and kind of open up that possibility that I can take one more step. I may not know, like, where I'm going or, you know, I may not have a sense of, like, okay, what does healing look like for me? But it opens up the possibility for me to, like, scan for safeness and step in that direction. And then when I am receiving hospitality or I'm receiving goodness or, or like, something awesome happens or somebody does bring me a, you know, casserole when I'm like really going through it, I can receive it really fully and give my nervous system a rest, a true break so that I'm not always in survival mode. So when you go through the spirited kitchen, yes, it's recipes and rituals, but it's also essays. It's also giving you kind of ideas about manner of approach, not only to be in relationship with spirit, but with yourself as well. And so, um, yeah, it really, it, all my work is woven and cross-pollinated, whether it's like my hospitality work, um, or my healing work, it all comes together as a through line towards personal and collective resilience in the Spirited Kitchen.
0: Wonderful. We're just coming to our time. Just a reminder to everyone, as Carmen just mentioned, we've been speaking about her book, The Spirited Kitchen Recipes and Rituals for the wheel of the year and it's a fantastic book. I'm looking forward to exploring it even more and of course making the eggnog and other recipes <laughs> as well as trying some of the rituals. Carmen, is there any uh final words, anything you want to share, any upcoming programs you've got going that you want to let people know about or anything like that?
1: Oh, well, if people are like into what we're doing in the Spirited Kitchen, I think they'll really love how it becomes animated in the Numinous Network. So every six weeks, we're doing a Wheel of the Year event. There's like rituals for every one of the chapters of the book where we come together live online. We do ritual crafts. I lead people through altar time. Sometimes there's trance work, there's ancestral veneration, etc. And we do a craft together um, specifically at Yuletide everyone welcome to sign up for just one month even of the Numinous Network. I would say Tide is the best time because you'll get access to all my courses, but you'll get to spend those 12 days with us where um, we're doing it in community. And I, I want to speak especially to folks who have very sensitive nervous systems or who feel overwhelmed at the holidays because that's a, a large population in the numinous network are people who have um, chronic illness and disability and very sensitive nervous systems including long covid so if you have autoimmune stuff and you're just like oh my god the holidays are so this just sounds beautiful but like too much one of the approaches and like our theme for this winter is restive festive so you don't have to do all the things someone in the collective will be doing it so if you don't get to do a ritual it's all good my friend somebody's doing it and is going to share about it and we just take it in like through osmosis we let our mirror neurons do the work and we just rest in that state of well-being of like oh that's so nice they made a gingerbread house or whatever it is and so every day for those 12 days from december 21st to january 1st there's like a 20-minute private podcast where i explain all the history and folklore of the day and different suggested rituals and then there's a three to five minute meditation as well so you can just like drop right in to some self-regulation and some calmness and soothing and then the community is there to like post pictures and say oh i tried this recipe or this is what i did for my fire ritual on the 21st or that sort of thing it's really fun and it's like the spirit of kitchen like comes alive for this period so i'd love to invite people to just check it out at my website carmenspaniola.com. just click on the numinous network or the spirit of you Tied to join us love to have you
0: wonderful thank you that sounds great and i just want to share one comment we've got lots of thanks rolling in this one's from karen she says thank you so much for this i am so rushing down to banyan tomorrow to pick this book up appreciate the many threads you weave together
1: Oh, that's so sweet. If I was in Vancouver, I'd be rushing down to Banyan to do a bunch of shopping too. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. I've been, as most people who are from BC, you know, probably anybody from BC who's been on your show has said, I love coming to Banyan. I've been shopping there for decades. And it is so true. It's destination. Whenever I come to Vancouver, so many of my card decks are from there. So it's a huge honor to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, Carmen. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom. Our producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at Banyan.com.